Hi, this is Greg Grasso with Chapter 1. In October 2010, nine months after the massive earthquake that devastated Haiti, another disaster began to unfold, soon to become the world's largest cholera epidemic in modern times. I'm talking with a brilliant author, Ralph Freyricks, and he has just written a book called Deadly River, Cholera and Cover-Up in post earthquake haiti ralph how are you today sir well i'm fine thank you greg uh, pleased to be on your show thank you um we all remember the haitian earthquake we remember the uh, media um covering the story and we remember some notation about cholera but this book goes into a very powerful, um, let's say, canvas of what has happened since. Could you give us a uh, snapshot of Deadly River and what the book is all about, please? Well, as you uh, said, that there was a terrible earthquake that had come to Haiti, and that thereafter, uh, nine months later, uh, cholera epidemic uh, appeared, and the cholera appeared, and the epidemic swept through the country. And uh, these uh, people, uh, 10 million people or so in this uh, in this uh, country of Haiti, uh, were just devastated during 2010 by these uh, various events. But the book isn't so much really a story only about uh, Haiti or only about uh, cholera, but rather it's more of a detective story in which a uh, epidemiologist from France, of all places, came in and uh, solved the mystery of how cholera came to uh, Haiti. And then the story takes a different twist, because it turns out that the detective found the culprit to be a very powerful entity, one of the most powerful entities in the world, and that created all kinds of problems. And the power was uh, exerted by this entity in the way of cover-up, obfuscation, and the like, not admitting that it caused the uh, outbreak or brought the uh, organism to Haiti, and uh, certainly not uh, doing anything to compensate the uh, many, many people who died in Haiti due to the disease. The the epidemiologist, um, I believe his name was Renaud Pierou. Um, right? Well, there's a lot of ways to say Renaud. Is mm. that if you're a Frenchman, if you're a Frenchman, then you might say Renaud Pierou. Mm-hmm. But since we uh, in uh, the United States, you know, we we deal with uh, names that have a uh, have uh, a more familiar ring to our ears, and so here in the United States, I refer to him as Renaud Pierou. Mm. And uh, that's 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 who it was. So, what did um, w- what was the pathology of this organism? How did it travel to Haiti? Um, uh, w- w- yeah, yeah. Please. Well, let me tell you just a little bit about first about the organism in yes. terms of how it traveled to Haiti is really the big part of the mystery that we can address uh, then thereafter. Sure. Um, cholera is caused by a bacteria called Vibrio cholerae, mm-hmm. and uh, it's a, uh, a bacteria that has about 200 different types. And oddly enough, they're all called 
Vibrio cholerae, but then they have other sub-names that uh, come thereafter. So a lot of times when people hear about it, they, uh, they, they assume that everybody's talking about the same organism, when in reality they're, they're, uh, they're, they're not. Most of the Vibrio cholera are just water-loving organisms that are hanging out in oceans and estuaries and other places in the world and are not uh, causing uh, much harm to uh, people. But there's two varieties that uh, have uh, that liberate a toxin. And it's this toxin is if you happen to swallow the Vibrio cholerae that, uh, in these two varieties that have the, uh, the toxin, then that toxin... Uh, 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 if it happens to the, the organism goes down to your stomach, then you uh, start vomiting. If it happens to go down to your uh, gut, to your gastrointestinal tract, then you start having a very severe diarrhea. Mm. And in both of these instances, there's fluid loss. The body uh, loses a lot of fluid. And if that fluid loss is sufficient uh, uh, the, the magnitude, then uh, the individual dies. So... Uh, there's, it's a it's a it's a it's a, it's a it's a very rapid disease. This fluid loss can occur a very rapid amount of time, and if uh, healthcare facilities and the like aren't around, then it can be uh, very troublesome. And that's what happened in Haiti. Haiti is a, a relatively poor country. It's uh, half of the island of Hispaniola. The other half is uh, a wealthier country, Dominican Republic. Hmm. And in Haiti, uh, about 10 million uh, people. And amongst those 10 million people, in the time since the outbreak started in October of 2010, they've had anywhere between nine and 12,000 deaths due to uh, cholera. And uh, the organism has caused uh, upwards of uh, 800,000 cases of the disease. So it's had a real major devastating impact upon Haiti. You know, I always thought cholera was, uh, let's see, not significant, but uh, let's let's say it's indigenous to populations that don't have good sanitary uh, facilities. Let's say. Well, Is that that's simple, the argument. Oversimplified? That's, 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 no, no, mm. no. Actually, mm. that's one of the two theories about mm. uh, cholera. Is mm. that uh, cholera is a uh, disease that uh, tends to be endemic in certain areas of the world, and that uh, in fact it's in their environment. Mm. And that uh, some people believe is that uh, periodically it lays low in the water, and periodically there's something called a genomic recombination in which neighboring Vibrio cholera kind of exchange uh, genetic pieces. Mm. And that when they exchange those genetic pieces, a new virulent or disease-causing form emerges, and you get periodic outbreaks. Mm. And we refer to that as the environmental theory about it, and that's one that's uh, been a, a fairly popular theory. On the other hand, there's a second theory that has been around even longer, but is not necessarily in vogue or hasn't been in vogue in recent years, and that is that uh, cholera is an organism that is spread primarily through human activity, and that means that uh, humans have to bring it to some place. Hmm. Humans either through uh, the, the humans themselves or maybe the food that they uh, that they uh, eat or, or transport, or uh, perhaps water that they uh, transport. But uh, somehow or another, some activity associated with humans, and it brings it. And that's what happened in Haiti. Haiti, uh, Haiti is a country that has never, never had cholera, as far as we know. 
Uh, they had some historians at Duke University that uh, looked at this in detail and went back as far as the uh, early uh, 1800s, looking at newspaper articles and other things, and they found that there was no indication that cholera had ever come to Haiti, even though cholera had been in the Caribbean and had been in parts of South America, but never, never to Haiti. Hmm. So in spite of the fact that Haiti, very poor country, one of the poorest countries in our part of the world, yeah. in spite of the fact that they had this poor country, they never had cholera. Whoa. So what we're suggesting is cholera isn't some inevitability that comes by every 10 years or so, and you better get ready for it. It was planted. But rather, Is that what you're saying? Huh? It was planted. What's that? It, it was brought to well, Haiti. It was planted. Um, what, what the what the uh, theory is that mm. it either was through this genetic recombination in the waters off of the shore, the environmental theory, mm. or somebody brought it, or some group brought it, whatnot, to the uh, to the country, mm. and that's where the detective work had to come in, where detective had to, epidemiologist had to study this and find out how did this organism. Mm come to uh, come to Haiti. It doesn't just spontaneously come out of the air or anything. It's something that either is brought or through this other environmental theory that either uh, is some kind of recombination of existing organisms. Hmm. So what part did uh, Renaud Perro uh, play in this uh, uh, role? I mean, uh, he, uh, he did most of the investigative work or, or the detective work, I should say. Well, were... he you wouldn't normally expect anybody who knows uh, uh, something about Haiti or has followed Haiti over the course of time mm. knows that uh, the Centers for Disease Control at the uh, of the U.S. government yes. have had a uh, operation there in Haiti for a long, long uh, time. We originally, our, our government originally was involved with Haiti because of a big HIV epidemic that had occurred there in the early days of the HIV epidemic. So the CDC group had been there for quite some while, and uh, when uh, after the uh, earthquake, uh, they in fact intensified their efforts because there were so much uh, so much problems and so many difficulties that occurred. Mm. And they were right there, Johnny, on the spot when cholera started in October 2010. So the story that I wrote should not have involved a French epidemiologist. Hmm. It should have been a story of CDC epidemiologists sure. because it's their bailiwick, it's their purview, it's where they were. Hmm. But something happened. <laughs> something happened. You and that something that happened <laughs> is that when the CDC epidemiologists were asked to find out what happened here, what was the source, what was going on in, uh, in, uh, in Haiti, oddly enough, the epidemiologist told the Haitian government, well, we're too busy to find the source. We're too busy to figure out how it got here because we're dealing with the bodies, we're dealing with sick people, we're dealing with the setting up a new hospitals, all kinds of different things and all that, and we just don't have time to hmm. figure out the source. You know, eventually we might. Hmm. Now, this might be an unusual, a usual comment that comes from physicians medical care providers, those kinds of individuals. But it's not a comment that comes from disease detectives. Hmm. Disease detectives are supposed to come in, supposed to, that's, what, that's what they do. Find out how this got there, find out the source. Once they have this information, they then can sit there and think about what went wrong, how did the source get there and such. And they can sit there and plan 
for intervention efforts, possibly elimination efforts, and so forth, once they, uh, once they know about this. And when CDC said, sorry, we're too busy, when the Pan American Health Organization, which also is, is the regional office of the World Health Organization, when their people in Haiti said, "Oh, yeah, well, it's it's not our role to find the source. We're we're uh, we're we're not we're not commissioned to do that kind of thing," they said that, and the head of the cholera program at WHO comes in and says, "Well, you know, is it? Uh, we don't know exactly why it happened, and." Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're not going to be looking into this. When all of those individuals said that they didn't want to look into the source, the government of Haiti looked around and they said, how are we going to get somebody to investigate why this uh, uh, terrible epidemic had descended on our uh, country? And uh, Haiti is a, uh, is, is a country that uh, became independent from France in uh, 1804, mm. and, uh, but still has connections uh, with uh, France. And so they called up the French government. They said, well, don't you folks have a epidemiologist there that can come in and help us and determine uh, how this disease got here and uh, why it's uh, spread in such a dramatic way and, and, and what, what we should uh, do next? And they said, as a matter of fact, we do. We have a man, uh, Renaud Perrault, mm -hmm. who is a uh, physician, actually a pediatrician, mm -hmm. who has a Ph.D. in infectious diseases and is a cholera expert, not not an expert in the organism like many people are that study cholera, but an expert in cholera epidemics. He studied cholera epidemics in Africa, other countries of the world, and uh, is, uh, is, uh, is generally considered an expert on this. So, uh, lo and behold, they called up uh, Perot. Perot said yes. And uh, the epidemic uh, was uh, was first uh, the first announcement of the epidemic was in October twenty uh, first, and on November seventh, Perot showed up in Haiti, ready for action. Wow! Um, in the book, uh, you state that this particular strain of cholera uh, was found in Nepal, so there's a connection between Nepal and Haiti. I don't get it. The Nepalese connection hmm. that you're talking about hmm. certainly evolved over time. Hmm. It wasn't the first thing, though, that happened. Hmm. Earlier, uh, there were three enterprising journalists that were in Haiti. One was a uh, Haitian journalist, and the other two were international journalists. One was uh, Jonathan Katz who had uh, worked there since 2007 as an AP reporter, and the other was Sebastian Walker, who had uh, worked for Al Jazeera. And both of these gentlemen, when this uh, outbreak started, uh, were paying attention to it, and just like enterprising journalists do. They uh, started wondering, you know, how did this all get underway? And uh, they had heard rumors that uh, the, uh, the uh, epidemic started near a town of Mirbele, in the interior of the country, close to where there was a U.N. base. Hmm. Uh, the United Nations, uh, by the way, had been in uh, Haiti since uh, 2004. They were originally called in to preserve uh, law and order and such in Haiti, and they were supposed to be there for a few months, but then gradually, like these things happened, they extended one stay after another, and now it's been 12 years since they've been there. 
And when I say that they've been there, is that they typically bring soldiers from different countries of the world, and they come and they put them in bases, and they remain in their bases and then periodically come out and uh, patrol the uh, streets in uh, what looks like military vehicles and walk around, you know, with their helmets and their <laughs> uniforms and their guns at hand and whatnot. And it looks pretty much, uh, when you look at photos of what's going on, as an occupying army. Hmm. But the occupying army were these mercenaries that came from throughout the world, all under the umbrella of the United Nations. Hmm. So they heard that there was some group that was near Mirabale, the town, interior town of Mirabale, that, uh, in which these uh, soldiers had come in. And uh, Jonathan Katz specifically uh, had gotten uh, from a friend, I uh, told him about a news article in Kathmandu, the capital of uh, Nepal, that had said that there was a cholera outbreak there. So he looked this newspaper article up, and sure enough, that's what it had said. So he trots off on uh, October 27th, uh, the, about a week or so after the uh, outbreak was identified, to uh, this uh, uh, base near uh, Mirabale. And it turns out, you know, when you get one journalist, other journalists are also as enterprising. And so the second journalist, Sebastian Walker, was there with uh, Al Jazeera, the Al Jazeera network. Mm-hmm. And Sebastian Walker, though, was not a, uh, a print journalist like uh, like uh, Jonathan Katz was, but rather he did video, and so he had video broadcast. Mm. But because uh, most of us, uh, you know, read the newspapers and whatnot, we don't necessarily watch Al Jazeera, is that Jonathan Katz's story that he filed on it traveled quite a bit further around the world, as a matter of fact. Mm. One of the places that this story ended up was in Montreal. Montreal translated, and Montreal was translated into French because of the French-speaking population, mm. and uh, that appeared on October 28th. Bernard Perrault in, 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 in uh, Marseille in southern France, looking around to see what was going on in Haiti, trying to do a little reconnaissance before coming to the country, happened to stumble across Jonathan Katz's original article. In that original article, Jonathan Katz suggested that the outbreak could have been started by uh, by uh, soldiers, UN soldiers that had come from Nepal. So Perot read the story, put it away in the back of his mind, like good disease detectives do. Is well, that's an interesting hypothesis. Let me file it with some other hypotheses in my mind, mm-hmm. and uh, and that's how he basically uh, learned about this. Now, I thought I thought bacteria has to have a conducive environment to to breed, and I would think that uh, part of that would be something wet or moist. So, I don't I don't understand how you can travel um, with a live organism, uh, or you know, on your clothes, or obviously these these soldiers, these UN peacekeepers didn't uh, have it in their system, did they? Of course. Oh. Why do you say obvious? <laughs> it's oh. not obvious. They got infected. There was an infection in Nepal in yeah. Kathmandu. That's what yeah. Jonathan Katz read yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. They oh. became infected. So they uh, came down. People often wonder, you know, weren't they tested before they left Kathmandu? And in reality, they were tested, but it's not a test like you and I might think about. Mm. What happened here is that the commandant, the medical commandant of the group, looked around and he says, uh, anybody got diarrhea? Mm-hmm. You know, kind of looked him over, gave him the eyeball test. Mm. 
and uh, no hands went up. Hmm. Then they gave him 10 days of home leave. At the end of the 10 days of home leave, they didn't even ask the question again. Hmm. So what we think happened here is that some people in uh, some of these soldiers that were coming to, uh, to Haiti got infected then in uh, Nepal, brought the organism, you get onto a plane, you know, they, uh, they, they were, uh, uh, not everybody shows signs and symptoms right away, but uh, the, uh, they get onto a plane, and uh, the incubation period typically for, uh, for cholera is about two to, two to five days, but generally around two, three days or so. So they get on a plane from Kathmandu, you know, it's, it's flying to uh, Port-au-Prince, so it's a long, long flight. Right. And, as you know, when you sit on an airplane, you're in pretty close contact with everybody. Okay, gotcha. So here they come onto the plane, they get then to uh, Port-au-Prince, the capital of uh, Haiti, and they switch to a bus, and the bus then takes them into the interior town of Mirbelay. Mm. Then, after they get off the bus, they go into a camp, and... Uh, we think that's where the uh, signs and symptoms came to the fore and that, uh, that the uh, infected soldiers, uh, uh, you know, were wa- around one another. Hmm. Hmm. Um, what was the CDC's uh, involvement in this? Um, none. None. And, and when... Uh, that was what I was saying. Yeah. That, and I think that's an important thing for the reader, and because yeah. we'll get into it shortly during this interview, I'm sure, yes, yes. is why... CDC would back away from this, but that's what makes this so interesting, because all of a sudden, as you will learn, is that politics intruded to it. So instead of this being scientists going about their scientific work, objectively finding what it is that was going on, all of a sudden you had political considerations that came in that stopped this investigation, and that only an outsider coming in, a man from France, an epidemiologist from France, who was kind of... Uh, immune, if you will, to the political pressures, mm-hmm. was able to come and, and, and cut through the fog and uh, come up with a uh, realistic assessment of what occurred. Wow. The CDC's uh, um, reluctance uh, sounds just like uh, governments. <laughs> Not my fault. Well, I'll tell you a little bit more about it. I'll tell you exactly where, I'll tell you exactly as to where it came from. Yeah. The... Uh, what happened here is that uh, I, I, I was puzzled by this. Exactly, you know, why would CDC not get involved with this? But lo and behold, is doing research for the book, I found that in September there was a posting by the U.S. State Department on their uh, website in which they talked about peacekeepers, international peacekeepers of the U.N., sure. and they talked about how the peacekeepers have now become an integral part of U.S. foreign policy. Mm. Instead of us sending for American troops to all these different countries where there's a ruckus going on and such. The, uh, what we do is that uh, the U.S. would donate money to the U.N. The U.N. in turn would then hire these mercenary armies and send them out under the auspices of the U.N., and they would go out to, to maintain order, stability, and such in some of these different settings. And what the uh, uh, State Department website stated was that this was viewed as a cost-effective intervention and part of U.S. foreign policy. Now, you might say, why is it cost-effective? Well, what do you have? You have uh, poor soldiers. They pay them $1,000 a month. They have a six-month tour of duty that they have, $1,000 a month that they have. They put them into these bases that aren't 
overly great bases. They're not like uh, like luxury hotels, not like a Marriott or anything. And uh, so they have bases. They have uh, the kind of poor sanitation around the bases, and that uh, everything is done on the cheap. So what happens here is that these soldiers, uh, uh, so consequently, this is a system that's been set up that serves the U.S. very well and certainly serves uh, international order such uh, uh, quite well. So when it turned out that through the investigation, and the investigation was quite extensive that Perot did, and there's a lot of facets to it, and so that, that's part of the, the charm of the book, if you will, is that how detectives, disease detectives, go about their business, that uh, uh, when it became apparent that it was the Nepalese uh, peacekeepers that were involved, uh, what we think happened is that uh, somebody in uh, the U.S. government let it be known that uh, this would not serve the U.S. interests. CDC um, is a uh, agency that some think is an independent agency, but it's not. It's an agency that is uh, sits under the auspices of Health and Human Services, right. Department of Health and Human Services, and HHS has a political head. So the political heads, again, very aware, probably of foreign policy, foreign policy issues. Likely there was a conversation between Department of State, Department of Health and Human Services, and let uh, them know that it's not in the interest of the United States government to have CDC do an investigation and find that peacekeepers are involved because uh, it might jeopardize not only the operation in Haiti, but in other parts of the world. And jeopardize So now, now you have a disease detective from France there, commissioned to do an investigation, and what does he discover? But exactly what I'm talking about, this huge thing. He's just one man, and he's facing this huge bureaucracy that has interests different from him. They have like a higher order, what they would say is a higher good over the good of finding in a scientific way what happened. And this higher good often prevails in the world, but in this case, it didn't, because Perot was a man who seemed to be fairly immune from some of these political pressures. Yeah, it, you know, it kills me. Uh, here we are um, uh, in the 21st century. We've learned a lot about how diseases transmitted we we know um we've known for decades um uh historically you know wash your hands uh you know uh, keep everything clean so on and so forth i would think i would th and and you know um other cultures in africa and asia um they're coming up to that let's say educational level they we we everybody on the planet's known for you know decades that that uh if if to be proactive uh means uh you know you can save some lives i i just don't understand when governments look at their population and they can see clearly how these people live how they you know the survival ability of these of these people it just blows me away that we don't take proactive uh, measures to to deter some of these things. I mean, it's almost like, okay, let them, 
you know, let it happen. I mean, <laughs> I don't get it. I don't get it. Well, just to show you how all this stuff works out, is uh, once uh, once all of this was known about, you know, what happened, mm. and the book gets into this, yes. is that there was various strategies for uh, dealing with cholera. Perot himself has an elimination strategy that he put forward and that he seemed to have initial success. But others wanted uh, kind of what you're talking about. They wanted something that had improvements in water and sanitation. Mm-hmm. And uh, they came up then with a commission for Haiti and for the Dominican Republic, for the two sides of this island of Hispaniola. And they said, well, we can stop, you know, these problems with Haiti, exactly what you're talking about, you know, kind of like in the United States and all that. And what it's going to cost is $2.1 billion. Mm -hmm. $2.1 billion. Mm -hmm. So they put this down as a 10-year plan. And uh, Pro worried about this 10-year plan. One, he worried about, you know, who it was that was going to fund it. Yeah. And uh, two, uh, he worried that it would take uh, far too long to get uh, up and running and that countless numbers of people would die in the meanwhile. So he had a, a simpler plan, an elimination strategy that he wanted to do. But I come back to this $2.1 billion because here it is that they put this forward, and uh, it turn, turns out, you know, the U.N. doesn't have the money. So what the U.N. does is it uh, tries to solicit the funds to help the island of Hispaniola by, internet, by members of the, uh, of the, of the U.N. And uh, they had a special uh, person who came in that the U.N. Uh, hired who would go around and try to generate funds, you know, talk to the member states, try to generate funds. And I think they got up to as much as around 17 or 18 percent promised, not in the bank, but promised. So uh, what happens here is that, you know, you can envision yourself if you're sitting there and uh, maybe you're sitting in Spain or you're sitting in, uh, in Italy or someplace and somebody comes along and says, oh, you know, these poor people in uh, Hispaniola, they would like to have $2.1 billion promised to them so that they can put toilets in and they can put uh, water systems in and such. And uh, we'd like to have you folks uh, in Spain and Italy and, and uh, the Soviet Union or Russia, other, other countries. We'd like to have all of you chip in and buy that for them. Forget about well, it. we got our own problems. <laughs> you got it exactly. You got it exactly. You know, and so you're up there in, uh, in uh, Idaho. Yeah. And... Uh, you know, you might have some folks, if uh, we ask them to all chip in and, and, uh, and help uh, people maybe in uh, Montana. Right. And that they might say, well, wait a minute, here, you know, we've got some problems of our own in Idaho. I don't know if we want to spend all our money in Montana helping local folks there. Right. So I think it's, it's, it's not an unlikely occurrence that people would turn them down. Mm-hmm. So if, if, if prevention um, costs money... If infrastructure costs money, um, lives cost money, and uh, so what's it going to take? Is it going to take? Well, I think Greg, I think is that the main the main thing as part of this story is that uh, that uh, these were people who were innocent people who were leading their life. They had they had all kinds of problems and all that, but cholera was not one of them. Right. And now all of a sudden, you have an international agency, the UN, of all. Groups. I mean, the UN is supposed to be a this wondrous organization, high-minded, 
uh, or concerned about human rights and other things, and uh, all of a sudden it does something wrong. Mm-hmm. And when the agency that does something wrong mm-hmm. was confronted with all the different information that came through the investigation that is described in the book and all, they never apologized. They never took responsibility for what was wrong. And everybody knows, everybody who's got a five-year-old child knows that you tell your kids to sit there and speak up. You know, if they did something wrong, admit it and such, we'll deal with it then. <laughs> we tell stories about that, you know, from early presidents who, uh, who admitted that they did things wrong and such. It becomes part of our lore as a nation. Now, here is the largest, most powerful organization in the world, the United Nations, and they refuse to take responsibility for what was done, and so consequently they refuse to apologize to the Haitian people for what it is that they did. Then along comes a human rights group coming out of Port-au-Prince, one group, and then they teamed up with another group in Boston, and they said, well, wait a minute, you, you can't get away with doing this kind of thing. You've harmed people with your actions here in Haiti. And so what we're going to do is that we're going to initiate a lawsuit against you. <laughs> and what we're going to ask for is compensation to the families of those who died and those who were injured by this disease. I mean, you've left families devastated, and that uh, when the breadwinner dies, other uh, maybe the mom and father both die, leaving the children orphaned. And it was a terrible, terrible situation, and the smug United Nations refused to deal with it. So they put forward a case, uh, this uh, the lawsuit. The lawsuit then eventually was heard in the uh, in a federal court in south, the southern part of Manhattan, and uh, because the UN is uh, based in uh, in uh, New York here in the United States, so the UN doesn't even show up for the hearing. You know who showed up for the hearing? You know who was the one who represented the UN at the hearing? A federal attorney Jesus. by the U.S. government. So at that point, it became clear that this UN's reluctance to get involved, it was the U.S. government that was involved with this as well, as to not admit culpability because, one, that there's liability, and two, is it puts strain on the U.N. peacekeeping operations in other parts of the world. So both the U.S. government and the, uh, and the U.N. were part of this uh, large uh, effort to uh, deflect attention away from the uh, peacekeepers. And it's Renaud, the, the story that makes the story so dramatic. Mm-hmm. And this is, I guess, I ask, uh, you know, those uh, people listening to this uh, station, listen to this story, yes. can you imagine yourself coming in and say it turns out you're a regular detective mm-hmm. and uh, you're all of a sudden supposed to be investigating a crime of some kind or another and maybe you're working in a major city like Los Angeles or, uh, or Seattle or, or, or Portland or or, uh, or San Francisco, and you're trying to just do your job, and it turns out that you find that the thief or the one who shot somebody, a murderer or whatnot and on, was the son of the mayor. You say, oh, my God, what am I going to do? It's the most powerful person in this city where I am. If I say anything, you know, they'll fire me and have all these troubles and all this. Then. And that's the kind of anguish that this... French epidemiologist had to go through when it turned out that it was the most powerful source in the world that had done this. And so the story gets not only into the, how he did his detective work, mm. the noble way that he did his detective work and such, mm. but what happened 
when all of a sudden he found who the likely culprit was, and how was it addressed, how did he address this whole obfuscation that occurred after uh, when uh, neither the U.N. nor the U.S. would be willing to admit exactly what it is that happened to occur. So it's a mystery book, and it's a uh, policy uh, policy uh, book as well, a political policy book as well. Well, I, w- I would think being a humanitarian, um, uh, you would you would forego personal uh, deflections. Um, you would you would just do what's right. And uh, you know, I see I see a lot of people talking these days about doing what's right, but not a whole lot of people are. There are a lot of people doing well, what's right. Well, but that's what that's what made it interesting yes. to me. I, I'm yes. not the uh, one who was in uh, Haiti. Uh, I'm writing about Renaud Perot, the yes. epidemiologist, yes. and I view him as a as a wonderful hero. Yes. And in fact, the, the the father of my field is a man named John Snow, who is a uh, physician who was around in the mid 1800s in London, and they had a huge cholera outbreak that uh, occurred at the time, and he was the one who solved this cholera outbreak, what it is that happened. And for that work, we honor him as being the father of epidemiology, an early epidemiologist who was there to start it all. And Snow had all kinds of problems, too. People had other theories that were going on, and and they didn't believe necessarily what it is that he was saying. So the man that we honor in our profession is somebody who tells it like it is, somebody who sits there, lays the facts out, writes about the facts, doesn't let politics push him aside, tells it like it is, and here now, all these many years later, we have a French epidemiologist who operates pretty much the same way, who just lays it out, who's a scientist at, 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 at uh, first, and uh, doesn't worry about some of these other things, does, or at least doesn't let it interfere with him. He did worry about it, but he didn't let it interfere with him. And uh, it's a great story. It's a great story about an interesting man who uh, operated in a very tough environment and came out not only uh, with uh, the right answer, but also used that answer to figure out ways to eliminate cholera in Haiti and likely would have succeeded if there hadn't been other political problems that came up that, uh, that hindered his effort. And those are also described in the book. Is, is, is cholera gone? Is it eliminated in Haiti now? No, no. Oh. Cholera was almost gone. Mm-hmm. Cholera was almost gone by following uh, the Perot's elimination effort. <laughs> uh, cholera was almost gone, but uh, part of the strategy was to develop a map that shows uh, all these different uh, small areas of uh, Haiti, and they were able to detect then where cholera was uh, was uh, occurring. Mm-hmm. And cholera has a, uh, a both a dry season and a wet season, mm-hmm. or Haiti has a dry season and a wet season. Mm-hmm. And during the dry season, you would see little pockets of cholera, but there weren't that many of them. Mm-hmm. And so he uh, had a mobilization team that would go out to all these little pockets of cholera and, uh, and put them out put them out like, a, like in a, a brush fire, mm-hmm. and put them out with, uh, with treating people, uh, giving them chlorine for their water, and doing some health education. Mm-hmm. So the idea was that if you could reduce or eliminate cholera during the dry season, when the wet season came out, facilitating the spread of cholera, there wasn't any cholera around to spread. Sure, sure. So the disease then would die out. And the remaining cholera that was still left 
in the river water and other waters would eventually then flush out of the system, and that would be the end of it. Mm-hmm. What's dependent upon, though, for the plan to work is that everybody is on board, all these mobile teams that they go out throughout the whole country, and that you don't skip places. But other people kind of like the idea maybe of starting a vaccination program. Mm-hmm. Or maybe they thought more about this uh, the water and sanitation program, $2.1 billion. Maybe we'll, uh, uh, we'll go in that direction. Maybe we'll try to do that. And like in any situation where you can't get everybody together, it's that separation that allows bad things to continue. And that's what happened is the cholera ended up going down, but it, there wasn't universal effort within uh, Haiti. And, uh, and then in the following wet season, when it came about again, is it uh, sprang forward again and it's uh, continuing. Hmm. This is this is insane, Ralph. Um, look at um, interesting, but I, I want to know a little bit about you. Um, you are a uh, professor emeritus. Um, yes. Of yes. Epidemiology at UCLA, a very credible uh, uh, institution. Um, you uh, counsel. It looks like you counsel for a lot of agencies. One being USAID. Um, I've got a buddy who who has worked with USAID since uh, the late seventies. He travels the the wars. Um, you know, helps rebuild. Um, yes. Uh, but w- what are you all about? Who are you and what are you all about, man? Well, I, when I started my career, I was doing uh, more domestic uh, work, and uh, I ended up then going to UCLA. Uh, I had a 31-year career at UCLA. And at first, I was uh, getting uh, grants and doing domestic uh, research and such. But I'd always been very interested in international work. And, in fact, my dissertation that I did was in Cali, Colombia. Uh, I did some early work that I did was in, in, uh, in Bolivia. Hmm. And, uh, and so I'd, I'd already had kind of an interest in international work. And after uh, my career was, oh, maybe uh, about uh, third to halfway uh, along, I uh, pretty well switched over, and I started specializing in problems to developing countries. I developed classes that I taught at UCLA about this. And uh, like I say, I did, uh, did a lot of advising in a lot of different parts of the world, hmm. but never Haiti, hmm. never Haiti. Hmm. And uh, I also never went to a uh, French-speaking place, is that uh, the language I speak is uh, somewhat in uh, Spanish, Hmm. I was born originally in Germany, so I could probably, uh, hmm. if I needed to, get by in Germany, but Germany was not a colonizing uh, place. So uh, hmm. uh, English uh, was the primary language that I spoke in, in most of the uh, places that I worked uh, with uh, the, the people who were like members of the health department and such, and who often would speak multiple languages. Hmm. Um, do you have a family, Ralph? I do. I have two children, two grown children. Two grown. One too. who is the uh, head of uh, Make a Wish. You know the Make a Wish Foundation. Get out. In uh, Santiago, Chile. Really? In Santiago, Chile. Whoa. Yeah. And the other who is a uh, notable artist here in uh, in Los Angeles. Siri, what kind of artist? Interesting. She does painting. Really? And she fine does, uh, yes, she does fine painting, a fine, a very fine artist, wow. painting and uh, teaches at uh, an art school and at uh, several uh, 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 schools, uh, the public schools as well, hmm. uh, universities as well. Wow. I'd love to talk to her someday. Mike. So, hmm. 
So neither one, it's uh, what, what you may say, you know, how does an epidemiologist, I was originally a veterinarian. Really? And then I got a doctorate in uh, epidemiology, and I uh, actually never did much with the veterinary part other than use it as a, uh, as a uh, uh, kind of a great biologic background. And, and I often talk about that uh, when I came out of veterinary school, I was uh, a master of all diseases but one. Hmm. Cholera. Or all species, excuse me, but one. Hmm. And that one obviously was humans. And then when I went ah. back to my doctorate in ah. epidemiology, I picked up that last species. Wow. So, uh, so it, it kind of rounded, rounded me out, if you will. But I, I worked mainly on uh, human-related problems that, uh, along the way. Do you consider yourself a detective? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Not only uh, do I consider myself a detective, but I also consider myself a teacher mm-hmm. of how to become a detective. Mm. And that uh, that's why, you know, again, with the book, uh, that uh, I, a lot of what I added to it is, is the storyteller in the book, mm. or, you know, things that I knew from, uh, from my career as an epidemiologist. Mm. And I think that that's that's the primary thing that epidemiologists do is that they do detection, but in a public health setting, not in a uh, in a criminal setting. Right. Wow. I was in I was a Navy corpsman during um, uh, the Vietnam era, and uh, I, I'm I'm fascinated now about forensics and uh, that type of detective work. I, I, technology has come so far; um, it's absolutely amazing what we have the ability to learn now. It is, and, and but the but the unusual thing. This is what happened with uh, Perot. Perot uh, was a different type of epidemiologist. It's kind of a throwback in parts, but very modern in other parts. And one of the things that people overlook is exactly what what you're talking about with the forensics and the different uh, new methods that are that are available. A lot of people think that you can go in and take some tests, some basic tests solve it all, everything is laid out before you. Mm-hmm. But Perot, the thing that's charming about him, or interesting about him, is that he's what we refer to as a shoe leather mm-hmm. epidemiologist. Sure, sure, on the ground. Means that he wants to go out in the field, yes. and he wants to see exactly what it is that happened, follow things along. One of the things that he did, that I mentioned in the book, is that he thought that this cholera, uh, that a large amount of cholera feces had been dumped into the Artabanit River, mm-hmm. which is a large river that flows through the interior of the country, kind of like the Mississippi mm-hmm. in, the, uh, in the United States, big mm-hmm. river. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he had to figure out, well, I know roughly how much water people drink. You know, if they drink in a day, how many, how many uh, mm-hmm. uh, liters, everything's metric uh, with him, mm-hmm. uh, how many liters they uh, drink in a day. And uh, that uh, now I can kind of see the river. I can see how big the river is. and all, But I don't know how fast the river is flowing. Yes. So he gets out there in the river, and this is, the kind, this is what I say, a shoe leather epidemiologist. Yes. He, he doesn't say, oh, my God, I don't have all the instruments. I can't determine this exactly. What does he do? He goes out and he finds a stick. Yeah. And he takes that stick and he throws it in the river. Yeah. And he looks at his watch and he times how far that stick moved yeah. over the course of, uh, of, uh, of a minute or so. And uh, then that gave him an idea of the flow of the river. Mm-hmm. He then went back home, did some other calculations and all, and he determined that there must have been an awful lot of infected feces Yes. The stools from infected people yes. that went into the river because he knew the flow of the river. Yes. He knew roughly how much water people would typically drink. And, and that's part of his, uh, his solving way. So it wasn't taking just fancy instruments. 
and doing things with that, but mm. using kind of the uh, the common sense that an individual uh, would uh, use, the kind that uh, that uh, uh, Sherlock Holmes or others in the past mm. would have used, that uh, is uh, sometimes uh, overlooked when you watch CSI or some of the other modern uh, right. modern detective shows. Right, right. <laughs> I'm I'm studying uh, Jamestown, early Jamestown, uh, 1589. Uh, you know the first settlement uh, in 1623. Yeah. I think um, huge, huge first five years of occupation. I think uh, cholera and typhoid rampant. Um, these these poor people right. got off the boat, went into this marshy land, and uh, couldn't grow any food. Had no sanitation. Um, you know, and and I think most of the population died off uh, the first. 10 years or something and then uh, right yeah i mean just fascinating how uh when you get back into history and look at conditions uh, i look at conditions and how people survived and it just blows me away and and and, and it also blows me away that there is so much now that we know and it just it's very frustrating that we have answers we know what we can do we just don't do it now that's what pisses me well off. if you look at that and that also is is kind of addressed in the book if you sure. look at the last the the three epidemics we've had now three great epidemics that have uh, have occurred the mm-hmm. first uh, that i mentioned was uh, was cholera in haiti in terms of being within the uh, in eyesight if you will of the united states yes the second one was Ebola yes. in West Africa, yes. and we also had cases from that that came to the United States with the United States involved in the uh, in the fight against Ebola. And again, people got very aware of Ebola. They followed this uh, in, in detail when uh, we had cases coming to the United States. And the most recent one, which has now come, which is terrifying people before the uh, Olympics yes. in Rio de Janeiro, Zika. is Zika. Yeah. So with all of these... What I find uh, fascinating with this cholera is that in all of these, if if you're going to listen to the advice that you're given mm. by public health officials, mm. you have to trust them. <laughs> if they sit there and say, well, we think that you can go to Rio de Janeiro mm. because we know that they have this disease, but it's during the during the uh, 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 dry season there, so that there's not going to be that many mosquitoes, mm. and we've done some calculations, and we think that there's a very low risk that you're going to get infected. Mm. Now, if you say, oh, you people have never lied to me. You people are honest individuals. I'm going to accept exactly what you say. Mm. Then you're going to respond one way. Yeah. But what happens if you read a book like Deadly River? Yes. And you find, well, sometimes people do lie to you yes. because there's a higher good at work. Yes. Maybe the higher good is not canceling an Olympic yeah. because now all of a sudden, you know, it's there. It's a lot of money on the table. It's a major thing that's there. The same way is that when Ebola comes out, people tell you certain things. Oh, don't worry about it. We got this under control. Everything is fine. And you'd like to believe them. But maybe they're talking about a higher good. Maybe what they're trying to do is to lull you down so that you don't worry too much about it. And that way you won't worry when, uh, when your uh, other people in your community, doctors uh, volunteer, nurses volunteer to go over there and help and such. And that that volunteer effort becomes a very important higher good to preserve. And so we don't want to startle the population at home worrying about this because otherwise they might not be encouraging 
of some individuals to go to West Africa and help over there. Or they might want to cancel flights or do all (laughs) kinds of different things to slow it down. So I'm saying this notion of a higher good, the fascinating part about Deadly River, is what you'll see in there where all of a sudden where you do have these conflicts that occur, the political conflicts that occur. And it's a case study not only of a medical detective story, but also a case study of how you can get these distortions in the parts of the, in, in the, in the uh, individuals who you have to trust mm-hmm. if you're going to go along with these uh, disease uh, intervention and prevention efforts. And that's where I think is that the book uh, hopefully raises conscious level in individuals who read about that, and they recognize that truth, truth, sometimes painful to bring to the surface, that truth generally serves you best in the long run because people then will uh, continue to, uh, uh, to revere you and listen to you and pay attention to what it is, is that you're saying. And once you start lying to people, once you start distorting the truth, once you start covering it up, there are consequences, and those consequences are not good. Well, we all know, <laughs> we all know that... Uh, that Basically, the human can handle truth. The, the human has survived over millenniums because, they, because they've looked at life and survival as, as, as truth, and this is what you have to do to survive. We're just finding out now that Ebola was first um, uh, found in Africa in 1958, only because these detectives have gone into that region and started following the pathology of the organism and followed it up the river and you know found other small um, communities that Ebola has been around for for decades um, right. Right. and and I hope I hope um, we get smart enough to to look at other cultures that have potentially this type of uh, devastating reality I well, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly agree with your uh, hopes, but I think as an <laughs> epidemiologist, I recognize, yeah, you know, yeah, that yeah. every few years, I know there's going to be something interesting coming along, something new, and that mm-hmm. uh, the latest uh, so surprised everybody with uh, was Zika. Yeah, but uh, I'm sure that in the next two to three, five years and such, there'll be some other condition that'll come along, mm-hmm. and and the important thing is not so much that uh, we can uh, pretend that these issues mm. won't come along. Mm. But I think it's that we can analyze how we deal with them mm-hmm. and make sure that we've got uh, a sh- a good regulations, good people, and uh, ready to spring on this at an early time so that we can get the uh, population mobilized, we can get people interested in it, yeah. and not have it hung up in this political world. Because as soon as individuals envision that something is a political entity, as, as we're seeing now. We just had a huge vote on Zika and Zika funding that right. uh, you've probably been following right. that, uh, that uh, just occurred. And the funding becomes short of what it is that's actually needed. Right. But if people don't trust the individuals who are requesting yeah. the funding, then the system falls apart. So again, I think it's that you can learn a lot from reading Deadly River, from all the different aspects of Deadly River, and see what happens, and hopefully 
individuals at CDC are reading it, hopefully individual WHO, people at the UN and all, and they can recognize that, yes, that there may be some immediate things that they gain from this with the cover-up, with the obfuscation, but that in the longer run, they may be creating undue problems that make it harder when the next epidemic or the epidemic thereafter comes along and people lack trust. Well said, Ralph. Trust, lack trust. Oh, boy. I think you hit it right on the head. Um, Deadly River, Cholera and Cover-Up in Post-Earthquake Haiti, written by Ralph Freyricks. Uh, Ralph, this has been very interesting and actually very uh, uh, sorry that we, we've got to cut this close right now because I could go on and on and on. This is amazing. Uh, I, I love I love smart people. Um, I love talking to them. I learn so much from you people, and uh, I hope that everybody picks up this book and uh, starts reading it. I think it's needed, and I'll, I'll just leave. Well, thank you very much, Craig. I appreciate uh, you having me on. Ralph, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.